Coming up on this episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast, New Year, New Challenge. Could 2022 be the year that you decide to specialize? Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here again. Um, Thank you for tuning in. And thank you especially to the people that support us via Patreon, because without your support, we wouldn't be able to keep doing this podcast. We've got a lot to talk about today, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Our topic for today is specialist roles and specialized impressions in reenacting. And our guest who we're going to talk about that with is uh, Brittany. Brittany, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. I've listened to the podcast for a while, and I know how enthusiastic you are about it and excited to be here. Well, why don't we start by, um, why don't you talk about how you got interested in World War II, how you got interested in history in general, and kind of how you got started in reenacting and um, what your experience has been in the hobby so far. Gosh, getting interested in history, I think, has been a lifelong thing since you know, I was a kid and my parents took me to museums. Um, But I've been reenacting for 10 years. Um, I actually specifically remember when I first saw a reenactment, I was like, that's what I want to do, mom and dad. Um, Didn't know how disappointing they would be (laughs) in their daughter for that. But um, really fell in love actually in middle school um, with with Soviet history. Um, And mainly due to the fact that they did have female combatants which was something that I never heard about before. Um, So with that, I kind of jumped into that. Once I heard there was Soviet reenacting, I was super excited to join. Um, So that's how I got really involved in it. And even in college, I actually wrote my thesis paper on it. So it's, it's definitely a love and passion. And I would say maybe about how long has it been? Like five years now? I jumped into German and I started doing um, Nachre and Hellfriend. So I mainly do um, Soviet, German, and then occasionally I would do Waves, which is United States. That's cool. That's a lot of different impressions, really. I feel like it's one of those things that, given the events that I can go to, I have to do a lot of different impressions um, with it being reasonable. Um, And it's one of the reasons that I fall into a specialist role majority of the time due to the fact that a lot of roles that women took on were specialist roles, depending on a lot of different reasons, Um, mainly given like how they can, you know, convince people that they belonged in the military at that time. So um, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to specialist roles. And that's my first kind of biasy in that, (laughs) Um, which I think is kind of important to admit. Let's talk about what specialist roles are. You know, to me, from my perspective as a reenactor, if somebody tells me that they're portraying basically anything other than like a frontline rifleman, mm-hmm. um, that I, I think their role is kind of specialized because from from my perspective, 
frontline riflemen is sort of the basic building block of World War II reenacting. It's what most people do when they first get started in reenacting. It's what I did when I got started in reenacting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just do that impression, you know, for years. Um, whereas other people will eventually take on different kinds of roles. And that's, that's kind of what I think of when I'm thinking about like specialized impressions. Yeah, I agree with you. I think to add another element to it, I think there has to be something technical to it. So there has to be some technical skill that has to be trained. So um, be it a radio technician, um, be it a machine gunner, knowing the ins and outs of a machine gun, a tankist, there is an element of the training being other than just the standard military, what it means to go through, you know, the standard boot camp kind of situation, depending on what military you use, um, to having another training on whatever specific role um, that you have. Yeah, I think even some like uh, leadership roles, for example, like a company commander, I would regard that as a specialty role because that and I think that kind of fits with what you're saying, where the skills needed to effectively play that role in reenactment is more than what a soldier would learn in in boot camp as a recruit. And it's more than what um, a reenactor learns when he's getting started. It requires uh, some specialized knowledge, you know, whether it's whether that comes from research or from being trained by somebody else. It's it's a little bit more than just, you know, it's more than the basic. Yeah. And I. It kind of reminds me of something um, that I read. I think it was Anna Kurla's, um Soviet Woman in Combat. She mentions that a lot of women were specialists because they had backgrounds in it. Um, and one of the things she did mention was there was a certain element of respect that a specialist would have. And it kind of fit into already natural decorum of gender respect. Um, and I think that's kind of another element to it where it's somebody that has a key skill that is very useful in the giant mechanism of making the military run as smoothly as possible. So um, I think that kind of adds to that. That's a good point. That's um, thinking about it the way that the real military or real militaries of present or past have thought about specialists. And, um, you know, that's a little bit different than how we as reenactors maybe look at specialist roles because our reenactment organizations are different from the real military. But there are parallels in it too, mm-hmm. um, where there are people in, you know, and, and there's parallels in this in, in all kinds of jobs and all kinds of aspects of life, really, where there are people who really have some kind of specialized technical skill that they, maybe they don't even use this skill all the time. Maybe the skill only comes out when they are in a specific situation. Mm-hmm. Like someone on a on a ship, say, who is tasked with being in charge of fighting fires. You know, he may mm-hmm. never fight a fire on a ship in his whole career, but then there comes a day when that skill and that knowledge and that training might come into play. And I, I think that's similar uh, with reenacting. Like my, mm-hmm. for myself, um, I do portray an infantry soldier sometimes when that's what the event kind of dictates for me, but other times I'm portraying a clerk um, or doing something else like that. So, uh, you know, it's it's good to have those kind of skills, I think, for a reenactor. It makes you more versatile, I think. Yeah. And I think even looking at it, going back to a historical perspective, um, 
I can speak on behalf of the Soviet Union. Um, they had paramilitary organizations and that mainly trained on medics, machine gunners, snipers, stuff of that nature, and both men and women had it. So when the war did come out, it was a situation where these people that already had these skills could easily fall into a specialist role. Um, and really, they just needed the boot camp training. I know Germany, you know, had obviously the Hitler Youth and the um, BDM, where I think some of those other skills kind of came into play, but it wasn't as, I guess, specialized as maybe the Soviet Union. But honestly, you probably know more about that than I do. So I think it's interesting when you look at the history, and even when you look at, you know, what you said with your job, like I'm in sales, I know how to use, you know, phones, um, I know how to type and stuff like that. That's all a part of my job. You have to have a situation where you have specialty roles. Um, and I think that kind of plays into it. And so naturally, people are wanting to fall in and learn a little bit in those more kind of particular areas. And especially when it comes to reenacting, you know, once you do maybe two and a half years of the infantry role, some people just want to continue doing on with that. Or other people are like, oh, I found this new area of history that I'm really fascinated with. Or I naturally have an inkling towards tanks and engineering or radios or or typing or whatever. And I think naturally people's interest in history grows over time and what you can bring to an event. Sure. So you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think when you got started in reenacting, you were portraying a Red Army rifleman. And eventually you came to take on some more specialized roles. Is that is that the truth? Actually, no. So I actually started with the Red Guard in Virginia as a sniper. Um, and the reason being is, and I, honestly, that impression <laughs> needs a lot of work looking back to it. But it came with the fact that when I was researching a lot of these roles for women, I was like, there, there wasn't very many standard just infantry women. And majority of the time, it was a very rare case where they pulled from rear line units and put them in there um, to fall into a unit. So for me to kind of like defend that I belonged in a reenacting scenario, it was like, oh, there were female snipers. So I have to do a sniper impression. Um, and over time... At the events given at that time just really didn't allow for it. And I just felt really awkward and clunky and it didn't really fit in. So I did take a standard infantry role, especially when I moved up to New England and I was with the 29th Rifles from her ninth, um, ninth Rifles. So I, I started that way and did that impression, you know, as long as I was in New England for majority of the time. So that was five years. Um, you also do like a Soviet communications impression. That's that's another one of the specialized roles that you've taken on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a newer one. I think it kind of goes back to this kind of full circle of what makes sense and chasing the ever ending quest of authenticity, um, which is why, why am I even here in the first place? Do I even belong here? Um, given my gender? Um, so I found out that communications there was about I think Anna Carilla said 70% of comms had female combatants in it um, and were trained on that technical skill. And I was like, that's an impression that I would really like to learn a little bit more. I was already doing Nachtenhelfrin, which is another um, communications role. And I thought this could be a way that we could really utilize myself without just being in a full comms unit. I could attach myself to 
a infantry unit, um, that would make sense. And um, I've had a couple of successes. Um, the main success, um, and there's things that I definitely learned from it that we could do better, um, was the um, breast event that I did in um, the Midwest in Indiana, um, which I had a blast doing it. Um, and granted, I was with a technical um, communication squad. But I think it did show how comms could be utilized at an event um, and how some specialist roles can be utilized at an event. So I, I think specialist roles are really useful in reenacting. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- it sounds like you kind of have the same experience where your ability to do communications maybe um, enhanced that event. Yeah, it was super useful at that event. And I really feel like it turned the tides in combat often due to the fact that we were able to communicate quickly and effectively to an HQ scenario, um, you know, if we did see enemy movement and if we did need to pull people from different positions to um, another area. And I think it really helped us defend the area um, that we had for that HQ. And I get to the point, and this always happens at events, where, you know, once you kind of have good communications and, people can't get through. You have to make another scenario. So the other side of reenacting is able to get in and have their like glory moment, which honestly, I have a lot of issues with. Um, It happens at every event. It's a personal me kind of myth thing, which is why are we, (laughs) why is our goal to win the reenactment? There's no winning in war. Like, I don't know. It's just really weird to me, but (laughs) um. It really, going back to my original point, was communications really helped turn the tide of that event, and it really made me feel um, like I was an effective reenactor in that scenario. That's great. Um, I've had similar successes with my clerk impression. I've talked about that on the podcast before, but Mm -hmm. this is something where I've got the ability to go and set up... um, various types of uh, sort of clerical setups, whether it be just a place where paperwork is being filled out or a place where orders are being given or a place that's a headquarters. Um, And I found that that's a really kind of in-demand skill set at events. I've had uh, event hosts and organizers reach out to me for events kind of all over the country almost asking me if I'd be willing to come to their event, uh, kind of pitching to me how they think that my skill set and my what I bring to the table would be a good fit for their event. And, you know, that, that kind of feels good to know that I've put together something that people feel augments events and that not everybody can do, right? So yeah. that, that's kind of a, a benefit. Um I think specialist roles are really useful in reenacting because they add a lot of depth to events where instead of just having two platoon sized elements or two company sized elements that are kind of just bashing away at each other all day, you can have people who are maybe they're repairing, you know, uniforms, working on footwear or they're mapping or communications or, um, some kind of specialized weapon system or their recon or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think being able to show that stuff, especially the support stuff, I think is so, 
sort of under, I don't want to say really underutilized, but I think it's something that that could be could be used to bring a lot more realism to reenactment if we had uh, larger scale events with more people in those kind of support roles. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to work with you under one of the, a couple of those HQ scenarios and coming up again for Fort Mifflin, um, where I'll actually be doing a stop tell for an impression, um, which is super exciting because I find the typing element, some of the most fun that I've ever had in an event because it's a way that you can fully immerse yourself in a task that people were doing. I mean, we can talk about the goal of reenacting is to have authenticity, but authenticity is unachievable, especially in a war scenario where there's biases of knowing that you're not going to die at a reenactment. Or, I mean, it's very rare to die um, at a reenactment where you're not going to injure. Well, some people do. But um, whereas like, typing sometimes you don't have to have that false sense of paranoia um you can just be fully immersed in that one task that somebody else did at that same time period and on another level just to kind of i don't know talk about my romance with the typing out events um many of the documents that we have for what is authentic or not came from people writing these things our sources come from them um and i think it, it, there's kind of a beauty in me doing that. That's that's absolutely fun. And I know that whenever we do an H, like a German HQ event, there's always people that want to have their soul books updated or want to help out with, um, you know, the paperwork. One of the greatest events was Gap, the last Gap. And I think his name was Jesse actually pulled me aside and was like, hey, look, I need to write a speech can you just type it out for me? And it was just a really cool, real moment thing that would have happened that was fully immersive with multiple people involved. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff gives me a great feeling. In my years of doing my clerk impression, I've kind of faced some pushback a little bit because not every event host or event coordinator necessarily sees a need for having that kind of uh, role portrayed at their event. And I understand that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I agree with that. Other times I think that event hosts and organizers might be missing the boat a little bit, not realizing that having people in rear area roles or specialized roles or roles other than infantry can add more uh, dimension, more depth to their event. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of responsibility on event owners to look at their events and what experiences they want to have um, other reenactors have. And I think when it comes to specialist roles and technical roles, it's definitely better for bigger events where there's going to be a lot of other people and there's going to be a lot of different action going on. Also, the other events that are um, rear line events, um, I think often living histories at a fort um those places really i think are probably the ones that shouldn't be pushing back on specialist roles because they're ways to actively engage people in understanding more, that war is more than just shoot them shoot them bing bing you know fun time not fun times but you know that kind of thing where there was like hey to to make where there's other elements like you yeah need someone to type up the orders you need someone 
radios to communicate it. You need cobblers to make the boots, et cetera, et cetera. You bring up a great point about public display events. I will say I never have had any event host or organizer of a public event ever push back against um, people doing specialized impressions, and they always love it. Like um, when we have done headquarters stuff at public display events or just show a a company clerk office, I always get tons and tons of good feedback on it because there's always going to be people who can portray uh, the combat infantrymen, and you really only need, you know, you don't need everybody doing that. Having people doing different roles, and especially stuff where there's a technical skill involved, where there's specific equipment involved, or basically props that you have to bring to the event, whether it's a, a Waffenmeister who's fixing guns, or a Schuster who's working as a cobbler, you know, you have to bring the equipment to do that. And that's something for people to see and interact with. I find people really love to see me uh, typing away on the typewriter, especially uh, kids love to see it. Yeah, I think that reminds me of two points that I wanted to bring up. Um, one of them is there's obviously a difference between collectors and reenactors, but there is an overlap. And I think specialist roles are great for collectors to show off their collection if they have like an inkling towards reenacting. Um, there's a few people in mind that have amazing radio collections. I won't name them by names because they haven't consented to it, but um they're a great example of they come to public displays, they have the radios, they're intimate. Are they going to a lot of the bigger reenactments and fighting in the trenches or, you know, doing a more zony kind of atmosphere? Not really. Um, but it's still something cool to have around to build that atmosphere up. Um, and then I think the other point that I wanted to say in regards to public events is public events are geared towards more of the educational purposes. And, you know, that's something that I've debated with myself is how actually educational are they? Um, and that's, it's 50, 50, it's dependent on how it's actually ran. But I think when we study history, it's so, so vast with so many elements that we have to put it in these nugget-sized little bites. And having these vignettes at a living um, or public history event is a great way to quickly go through that history and all the different roles that encompassed, you know, what was going on at the time that makes it more digestible for people and kind of sometimes makes it click for certain people. Sure. I think units benefit a lot from having people with specialized skills and specialized impressions because um, just as these impressions can be an asset to an event, they, I think, can also be an asset to a unit. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I I probably have said this a million times, but I think every unit should have somebody who can fill out the personal identity paperwork for the people in the group. I think that's an important part of a reenactment impression and having someone in your group who can do that stuff for you is so useful. But, um, you know, another example would be like in my group, we've got Casey who was on a previous episode of the podcast talking about machine guns. We've got an event coming up and, uh, an idea was thrown out there for him to do a training class where he would teach people about the handling and operation of the machine gun. And I think that sounds really zony and fun. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm glad that we have a guy who has the equipment and the skill and the expertise to, to kind of share that knowledge and to create that experience. Um, you know, every, every specialized impression has its place and has uh, the potential to really add something to, to a unit or to an event. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. And, you know, going back to Gap, like I still remember when you gave that training on Soul Books, and it was you could do trainings in a very cool and time period way. That's a lot of fun. Um, I think going back into a more combat role scenario, I think it breaks also the monotony of doing the same old, same old at events. Um, There's many events that I love um, and that I will continue to go back to, but it does always end up being kind of the same situation where it's okay. We fall into this area. We do this, you know, then at later on we cook the you know meal etc um whereas i think specialist role if people are getting like this is this is getting a little redundant is a way to a add an element that is going to change the battlefield so going back to communications you know a way to relay and bring people up to that area um if there needs to be more engagement um when it comes, I mean, machine guns in general are a situation where, um, definitely can change the tide of a battle scenario if you want to look at it. Or if somebody is wanting to do something like sniper, where it's like, you know what, I want to be with one other partner, use all the tanks, but like never take a shot, really just observe, wait for a moment where it makes sense. And even then they're probably not going to take their hit, but that's okay. That's not why you do sniper. Well, if you do sniper for that, then you're doing sniper for the wrong reasons. But, um, I think, I think it's a way for people to get a different flavor of reenacting. What's it like being a sniper at a reenactment event? I mean, it depends on the event. Before my time, they actually had like juries with it, which I think is a little ridiculous. I mean, For me to do a sniper impression, my goal isn't for someone to take a hit. My goal is to not be seen, to observe the terrain, um, and really just watch for movement until somebody of a caliber that I would try to take a shot with, be it, you know, someone with a high enough rank, be it a machine gun nest, etc., comes into view. I personally like that. I think it engages this kind of paranoia that's a little bit more real. I'm also crazy, <laughs> as you know, Chris. Um, it's a little bit like a hide-and-seek kind of thing um, that I think is really fun for me. Um, it also allows me to kind of reconnect myself in a moment. Um, and I think a moment is what we call zoniness, you know? So if you're somebody that just doesn't want to hide in the woods and watch at people all day, then I would strongly suggest against a sniper role. Um, but for other people like me, um, I think it's a, it, it's a role that has been done very, very poorly at a lot of events, but could be done better. And I'm excited to see with big enough events if more people will do it in a more accurate and more just observing kind of way. Sure. 
Why why do you think the Soviet Red Army used uh, females in sniper roles to the extent that they did? Great question. Uh, It's not like I wrote a thesis on this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I think one of the reasons why they utilized women is because they made a plea. Um, So they did have a lot of paramilitary organizations beforehand due to um, what was communist rhetoric at the time. Um, And I don't want to bore anyone with a long story of this, but basically a lot of women use the idea of communism in a genderless society. Communism is seen very differently than feminism um, for people that care about that. Um, But these women were like, well, under communism, we're all equal. So therefore, we're equal in the roles that we can do. Um, So they would join these paramilitary organizations and takes up shark shooting. Um, other big one was parachuting, um, piloting. There was a famous um, pilot, Maria Raskolova. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I could be wrong. Um, who actually was like the Amelia Earhart of the Soviet Union and then went on to lead the um, women who were in the Air Force, um, which is really interesting. So... There was this rhetoric where they were able to kind of promote themselves in these roles because they already had the skills. The other big thing that we need to realize is the door is literally at their doorstep and they are losing lives. So they don't really have an option to turn down people. So people that are wanting to fight are passionate. And especially when, you know, so many people knew so many people that died and they could be left to die. They felt that they could take death in their own hands by defending their country. And by their country, I don't necessarily mean the ideals of communism or Stalin. What I found is the propaganda at the time really made it where communism and Lenin and the heroes of the Soviet Union were all a part of your own small circle when that really wasn't the case. Um, And, you know, when people are in a situation where it's a desperate war of that nature and it affects you so much, you are willing to um, basically put your life on the line and do that. I think the other thing is they were already utilizing, you know, women were going to college, which was a new thing um, and wanted to do these technical roles, um, be it, you know, snipers or whatnot. Um, I think the common misconception is when it comes to snipers, um, female snipers is like, oh, there were so many of them. Like, there wasn't as many compared to, like, combat medics, which actually is another thing that we haven't talked about, which is a huge specialist roles that, you know, tons of people do at events that are incredibly useful and can be done great. Um, or communications going back to women. I think the reasons why a lot of people are like, oh, let's focus on female snipers is because there's tons of famous ones and they're highly propagandized. So, I mean, Luvivia Pevachinko, still to this day, I think she's like 15th ranked best sniper in the world with 309 kills. You know, people romanticize these women and goes into this thing that I wrote along about, which is, One of the ways that women were able to mold themselves in the military was in four roles, which is the idea of like a familiar figure, like a mother or a sister, or then it would be a situation of like, oh, I'm the girlfriend they're fighting for. Um, And then 
one of the last ones is the martyr role, which is a lot of these women died. And it's like, okay, men, these women are dying. Why aren't you? And it was highly used in Pravda and these magazines to get people to fight. And therefore, they're part of our primary documents and we remember them. And there's this kind of, um, you know, when something is more right about, people think, wrote, written about, people think it was more common. Um, I hope that answers your question. I kind of went on a tangent. <laughs> No, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting back, I guess, to specialist impressions, I, I w- was kind of thinking about as much of a benefit that they can be, sometimes they really don't work at a particular event. Mm-hmm. You know, Sometimes mm-hmm. there will be a certain event where a certain impression doesn't work, You know, kind of thinking about my own experience. I remember one time I was just absolutely dead set on going to this tactical and doing clerical stuff and being in the rear and portraying a a Schreiber in the field. And the tactical began and everybody marched off to the battle, leaving kind of just me behind at the camp with my writing desk and my typewriter. And at first it was like, okay, this is, this is cool. You know, I can hear the distant sounds of battle and, I'm I'm doing my thing and it's realistic what I'm doing. But as the moments ticked by, I kind of realized, you know, this is actually kind of silly and I'm not really doing anything that contributes to the event and I'm not really participating in the event. So what is it that I'm really even doing here? How How is this different from me setting up and doing this in my backyard mm-hmm. um, on, a, on a weekday afternoon? Um, and I know I, I'm thinking about like a friend of mine who years ago had put together a medical impression because he was really, really interested in field medics and the people who worked in the Army Medical Service, the people who worked in the field hospitals and in the aid stations near the front. And he did research into it and put a kit together, but found that the opportunities to use that weren't as frequent as he might have hoped because the reality of fake World War II battles as we do them in reenactments generally have, they often have limited or or kind of no use for um, medics, you know? I mean, uh, obviously different events have different rules and different groups even handle dying in the field in different ways or whatever. But uh, Mm -hmm. what's your experience? Do you... Have you ever found yourself trying to do something in an event that didn't work? Or um, is there a way that people can sort of mitigate that risk so that doesn't happen to them? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it goes back to what I was saying is what does the event organizer and the units that attend the event want to achieve? And there's just going to be some scenarios, especially when it's just one or two or three units, where a specialist role is not going to make sense. Um, and and how the scenario of the event is even written up. Um, I know there's some events that I just can't do. Like, it doesn't make sense for me to be there. Um, so, you know, I, I look at this more with my German impression where it, you know, it's a case where, you know, Stab Helfren or Nachr and Helfren, are just not going to be utilized in every scenario because they're rear line. Like the closest knocker in Halfen was, I think, 12 miles away. And even then that was a big freaking deal. Um, I think going to a bigger picture instead of just talking about specific roles is 
going into, if you are going to utilize a specialist role, I think there needs to be a number of active participants that are willing to interact with a specialist role. If everybody at the event is wanting to do a hardcore tactical where they're digging foxholes, there's limited kind of communication, it's like a last ditch scenario and they've been cut off from everybody else, it doesn't really make sense for a specialist to be there, you know? Um, And those events are great and amazing for what they are. And I'm not saying they're bad events, um, but they just don't fit specialist roles and people just need to be okay with that. Um, But I think it goes back to more and more people are demanding specialist roles. The other thing, too, that we need to take in mind is when there becomes only specialist roles, which I have seen happen, and it isn't good, mainly at tacticals, like living dis- or um, public display events, like it's, it's a little more forgiving if everyone's a specialist, um, going back to what we talked about before, where it's, you know, taking nuggets of history and teaching the public. Um, but when it comes to a actual, like, reenactment that's private and everybody's doing a specialist role like people just can't be the infantry people and nothing happens (laughs) like it's it it, it takes away from the realistness of the event so I think there has to be this fine line be either limiting the event or limiting the amount of specialists at an event or uh, being like, there's no specialist at events because this is the scenario that we're doing. But I highly encourage more event organizers to think about, okay, what cool specialist role can we utilize and how can we implement it Implement it into the scenario? And I think the scenario is the most important thing for making specialist work. My previous uh, reenactment group that I used to be in at one point tried a strategy of really encouraging people to find their own niche within the hobby and to pursue that passion um, as much as they possibly could. And I was very on board with that idea. It was part, you know, I was pushing for that really because at the time I was really trying to make my clerk impression work all the time. Um, But I guess from maybe some other people who were in the group at the time, uh, would would argue with me on this, but I I didn't think it really worked out because I think there is an element of unit cohesion that can happen when you've got people doing the same thing and when everybody is doing something different that I think can fall apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and I think certain roles make sense in the greater things, greater scheme of things. I think about like medical roles, combat medics, I've seen a spike in them being utilized at events, Um, especially if there is a, you know, field HQ scenario where people can be drawn back and then that's the respawn point. Um, But other situations, like not every event can call for a lone tank. (laughs) uh, And I'm not dissing any tankers or anything or even uh, like field trucks or anything like that like there's certain events where that makes sense other events you know it it doesn't make sense in the grand scheme of things um and if everybody has a specialist role it kind of gets away from what are we actually portraying as a cohesive unit um and I think that's a conversation that units need to have 
which is, okay, so you want to portray a specialist. So how does this fit into the actual history of what our unit is and how many people are actually coming to the event? Are you just going to be the lone single, you know, machine gunner or sniper or, you know, um, clerk in your case? Or, you know, it just doesn't make sense. With that being said, I have seen scenarios where especially older reenactors that still want to have that kind of camping and rear line aspect be like, you know what, I can't go out in the field anymore, but I do want to do a cobbler impression or a cook or something of that nature where they're able to still be active in the event without partaking in more of the physically straining aspects of reenacting. Sure. I mean, I think um, I think this works best when it's not just one person, but when when you and your friends say decide that you're going to do something together. You know, if you have eight people, you could portray a late war infantry squad, and that's like a useful thing to have at an event. Whereas if you have eight people and one of them is portraying a priest and one of them is portraying a medic and one of them is portraying a geologist or whatever, you know, then that's like, you know, I think you start to lose some, some realism there. I definitely think. Wait, was there a geologist to, role? Like I've never heard of that. Oh yeah. The, well, we used to joke around about that in my old group about portraying military geologists because um, the Odessa events where we go and do stuff there's fossils to be found there and for us uh part of the event was always going to look for these fossils and we actually did a little bit of research and found out about military geologists and what kind of gear they might have had and what kind of insignia that they wore and like joked about doing that at an event you know we're here to uh take samples of these rocks darn i wish i could join you it reminds me of i mean i was talking to a mutual friend of ours um about doing what is it art historian and some of the art units both on the german side and the soviet side <laughs> um have a full-on indiana jones experience i can but obviously, that'd be incredible <laughs> obviously that doesn't work for most reenactments like please do not uh Unless somebody wants to do an Indiana Jones and have a full Farby event. At that point, we're, we're LARPing, but, you know. It's cosplay, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember a few years ago, there was a group that got started. I don't know if they're still around, but they were entirely based around the idea of the rear area sort of supply train. So they had people who were doing uniform and equipment repair. They had people who were doing cooking. They had people who were involved in like logistics, transportation, bringing stuff to the event. And I thought that was really cool. You know, these were all people who weren't interested in the uh, fighting Mm -hmm. recreation aspect of reenactment, but were definitely interested in the history of it. And they had formed a group out of it. You know, I thought I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that would be awesome to actually see and to see it utilized on an event. I think of, you know, the few times that I've done US, um, Wave has only been living history, but I do know people that do GI roles and how much better it would be to see a lot of those Jeeps at an event be utilized in that kind of way. Um, I think that would be really, really cool to experience and honestly add to my experience as a reenactor, even if I'm not actively participating in it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um 
you and I and everybody listening to this who's done reenacting before knows that there's always going to be authenticity compromises in reenacting. Yeah. Um, and I think that it bears mentioning that that comes into play when we're talking about specialized impressions and roles because very often I feel like um, somebody doing this finds that there's an element of scale that is missing you know you're you're one man representing a three-man team or a 10-man team or 100 people Mm -hmm. Um, you're too close to the front you know your where you're you should be headquartered in some kind of a building and instead you're in a small tent by yourself you know or the item that you need is some insanely expensive museum quality teletype machine that most people can't afford (laughs) sure and and if you did have it you wouldn't take it to the event yeah um You've mentioned scale a lot here, the size that an event or unit kind of has to be in order to make best use of these things. And I think that that really just um, something that I think is so important in reenactment is for people to be aligned with reenactment groups to participate in organized reenactment events, because you really need a sort of a critical mass of people in order to make a lot of things possible. And that applies a lot, I think, to these specialist roles. Yeah, I think agree. And I know, especially in this day and age of reenacting, where it's becoming smaller and smaller areas that have active reenacting presence. Um, I'm here in Georgia in the United States, and there used to be a huge reenacting scene here. And honestly, it's really kind of dried up. So I've been noticing that, you know, two scenarios happen where, you know, events that have very active units, I'm looking at your unit in New England mainly, you know, you're doing events maybe every month or every other month, um, and but there are a bunch of small ones, and then there's maybe one or three big events a year. And, you know, they used to be what we would call max effort events, um, where people would drive the long haul and everybody in the unit would go. Um, I'm seeing them less being max effort and more people being like, it's more effort for me to get there, but I'm going to make the longer distance travel um, to go to these events. Like I'm going to Indiana, like, (laughs) you know, I've gone to Ohio. That's a, you know, these events are 12, nine hours for me now. I mean, and then I'm flying to Mifflin, which is in Philly, Uh, (laughs) which that's another thing flying to events. um, That could be a whole other podcast story if you haven't done that. Um, But yeah, um, our friend Ricky wants to come on and talk about that. Yeah, actually, that would be a really good one since he's a pilot. So a little, uh, He says that there have been times in his life where he has only ever been able to do events that were very far away, that there were basically no reenactment events that he could participate in near where he lived. So he's got kind of a unique perspective about that that I think is really cool. Yeah. Um, So that's a good little Uh, teaser for whenever Ricky gets on. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have him on soon again. Yeah. Um, But you live where you live now. You mentioned the reenactment scene isn't what it once was. And I think it's probably true that a lot of people listening to this will be finding themselves in the same shoes. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, this uh, ongoing pandemic that is now entering its 50th year or whatever it's been, uh, it continues to affect reenactment. And I don't know what reenactment will look like exactly when or if this ever ends. uh, But my unit doesn't do as many events as we used to. And that's a trend that had started even before the pandemic, because a lot of the events that we did 
don't happen anymore. And they were replaced with events that, that happen one time and don't happen again or um, happen a couple of times. So Yeah. Um, Actually, that brings like a really big point that pertains into specialist roles is land. Like, and I can go on a big brain theory rant about how land is becoming less and less accessible and we're forcing ourselves into more online presences, but in order to actually do what we want to utilize and for people to actually have a stake in something, they have to have land. And that goes even beyond reenacting. And um, what I'm finding is just, there's not as many landowners um, that really support reenacting and old event sites are going away, you know, because of X, Y, Z. And I think it's really important to support the events that, you know, are consistent and do have that land because I don't know when those are going to go away, um, given the state of things. I mean, considering real estate now and today, you know, it's harder and harder to get people to pitch in with the astronomical prices to have a bunch of people play World War II soldiers. Like, it's not very cost effective, you know? Sure. So I wanted to touch a little bit on um, sort of the dichotomy between the unit model of reenacting and the, the so-called campaigner model where everybody comes together and portrays one unit at the event and how that interacts with specialist roles. Mm-hmm. I find that specialist roles can be really useful in both of those sort of constructs. I have done my clerk impression at events where there was a you know, everyone was portraying one force on one side. And I think that my office set up and the tasks that were done by myself and the people on my team were an asset to the event. Um, I also know there are events where the hosts are dead set on having everybody portray exactly the same impression. We are portraying an infantry platoon. Everybody at this event is going to have a role specifically in an infantry platoon. And anything that's not a part of that is, is not welcome at this event. And I, uh, I understand why they do that. That's not the type of reenacting event that I really enjoy the most. I like events where people can bring to the table what they are passionate about. I think people bring, bring out their best when you open the door for them to showcase what it is that they're really good at. Um, Mm -hmm. But I know that's, that's kind of subjective. That's a matter of opinion for me. Yeah. I think there's a time and place for both. Um, And I think in order for reenacting to survive, you need to have both and you need to support both. Um, When it comes to the smaller unit things, when I was thinking about doing a comms impression for Soviet, my first thought is, how do I seamlessly integrate myself with a standard infantry unit when it is not authentic for a woman to really be a part of that? And, you know, I could have gone the medical route, but that's not something I'm passionate in. All power to the people that are super passionate about that. There's tons of you guys and support the work that you guys do. Um... But for me, I was like, it's something that is not seen and I really think could help, help, you know, the unit and the fact that, you know, we can communicate better and therefore effectively pull people where they need to be. I think if you're doing a specialist role, you need to think about how you're actually supporting the infantry ro- uh, roles and the infantry roles should be the biggest chunk 
of the people there if you're doing a tactical event, in my opinion. Um, I think campaigner events have been really great for that because they draw in a lot of people and there is a conversations that happen beforehand in regards to what we want to do as far as scenario goes. It's less tied to what unit are you portraying and more tied to, well, hold on, let me change that. It's less tied to your whole time as a reenactor only portraying one unit to what unit are we portraying? We're doing a lot of research into this one event into history and we're going to try to portray that. And more times than not, um, the actual event in history had more people, which warranted, you know, more specialist roles, but you can try to kind of scale it down to make it work. And I think that's where specialist roles really shine. And it goes back to, you know, compromising the authenticity. Like numbers are just are impossible in this hobby. Like you have to have as many willing people to put themselves in debt buying crazy old clothes in order to have, I guess, an authentic moment, I guess. And I think you've talked about it. There was a day and age where there were tons of people, hundreds of people on event, but I don't really see those happening anytime soon, especially with the pandemic. Um, but I think we can compromise to get kind of these boiled down snippets. And sometimes the event scenario is the only boiled down snippet that we're going to focus on based on the numbers is, like I said, a cutoff unit that is low on supplies and low on men that don't have communication, which makes sense for our numbers. And then there's other times it's like, you know what, we're going to compromise the idea of, you know, we don't have a thousand men. But we're going to do these roles and we're going to implement them the best that we can possibly do. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that's well said. You know, there really isn't like a one size fits all approach. I think it just is one of those things where authenticity in general is just impossible to have. And it's what are we willing to compromise to have someone have an authentic experience based on what they view as authentic, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, what I what is what feels real to me might be totally different than what feels real to literally anybody else. You know, ultimately, on some level, there's a make believe aspect here, and we are kind of all reenacting alone mm -hmm. inside our own minds, in a sense. You know, like I'm willing to compromise on numbers because for me, as a woman, and like I have a very special view on this, is mainly women were specialists, so it makes sense for me to be a specialist. Whereas, you know, for you, you can just do an infantry person and maybe numbers are more important to you. And that isn't the authenticity that you want to achieve, air quotes, like faux authenticity, <laughs> what you want out of the event to experience that's real. I wanted to just throw out there, you know, since you kind of brought it up, I, I do have the opportunity, the option to portray... Um, a regular basic infantry rifle guy at events, if that's what the event calls for. And I do feel really lucky to do that. If I was only sticking to portraying something specialized, it would really limit the amount of events that I could go to. And I think um, you've kind of handled it sort of a, a different way. You have a variety of different specialist impressions that you could deploy depending on what the event is and what it calls for specifically. Yeah. And this even just goes to my general interest. Like, 
my study and background is in gender studies in communism mainly um, in the Second World War. And that kind of encompasses a huge umbrella of things where I've now not only studied the Soviet Union, I've studied Germany, I've studied America, you know, even looking at some British stuff, um, where they have a whole different kind of stance on gender based on what the culture was prior and what propaganda dictated um, for certain gender roles. And so for me, that's interesting. Um, So, you know, that's kind of why I have a lot of different impressions. And, you know, I wish sometimes that I could just really just dig into one impression and just, you know, do all my research and time and energy on that. I'd be definitely a hell of a lot richer. (laughs) Let's talk about the challenges of doing it. I mean, it's, um, it depends on the role, of course, right? But in general, for most of these impressions that we're talking about, there's like a significant investment in equipment for this stuff. Yeah, it really is. Um, I know with communications, like, I mean, I got a deal for a radio that's, you know, five, like $500. And even then, the field phone that I do have that is a wartime field phone isn't even accurate because it's the Belka light case and I need to find a way to make the wooden box. So, you know, um, there's... Uh, a lot of the times you're either pulling from originals, which also brings into question, do you want to bring an original to an event? Because you don't want to damage it. Um, it kind of goes back to specialist roles. I feel like a lot of people that first start their events as a specialist role are collectors to begin with, where they're already in this hobby dropping a ton of cash. Um, and it's hard to do a specialist role on a tight budget. The best way you can utilize it is find people that are commonly interested and hope that someone has money to utilize it. Um, but it is, this is one of the sad things of, you know, classism in this hobby where it's just, there's there's a price tag on it. I mean, there's other rules that I could say that you could probably do on a budget. Like, there's sure there's tons of medical equipment that's incredibly expensive, but if you're doing a medic in kind of a combat medic scenario, you can maybe just focus on bandaging wounds and that's probably less expensive. Um, so there's ways to do specialist roles on a cheaper budget, but it depends on what you're actually doing. Right. Like you may need to buy stuff that ranges in price you know, you may be able to spend $100 or $200 and get everything that you need, depending on what you're trying to do. Or you might be looking at a literal five-figure investment to, to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or more in some cases. I mean, it can be things can get absolutely wildly expensive. You mentioned the use of original stuff. Original World War II collectible items seem to have skyrocketed oh, geez, in price yeah. since the pandemic began. That's my, that's my experience of it anyway. Um, and uh, granted, for some of the specialist stuff, you might be looking for stuff that's kind of obscure and so maybe not subject so much to this huge run up in price. But then again, if if you're looking for obscure stuff, you might find that it's not a matter of price. It's a matter of just getting your hands on what you need to do your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think all the time how much I would love a teletype machine and those things are 2k but you can't even find them anymore and actually it's funny my dad used to work for AT&T back in the day and um 
he even told me a story. He's like, oh, yeah, we just threw out all of those things when we went over to Germany to help them out with the merger. And I was like, no, dad, how could you? (laughs) But, um, (laughs) you know, people are not thinking about, you know, in the 60s, you know, how these outdated pieces of equipment are going to be collectibles um, or be used in a reenacting setting. Um, I think there are impressions that you can do on a cheap now that I'm thinking about it. Like... Ideally, for a Stav's health friend, like, you would need a typewriter, which are not cheap. But you could definitely just do it where you're writing and signing off on paperwork, you know? Um, And dip pens are not insanely expensive and were utilized. Um, But the thing that I found about doing, like, a Stav's health friend impression or in your case, like a clerk impression, is over time you just buy more and more stuff because it just makes more and more sense to the paperwork you're doing. So you end up, you know, spending hundreds of dollars on stamps and then you have a bajillion pens and ink wells and then you have now five typewriters <laughs> in your small, tiny apartment. <laughs> um, yeah. And it just kind of over time gets more expensive. So I think, you know, it's just kind of one of those things that, if you decide to pick a role, you're probably going to spend a but- or ton of money on it. <laughs> I think that's a good point is that practically any reenactment impression that you do, uh, regardless of what kind of impression it is, sort of becomes an excuse to spend money. And the more impressions you have, the more money, you know, the more ways you can find to spend that money. Oh, yeah. Even just uh, in a regular role, I think about pocket trash all the time. There are dumb pocket trash items that I have spent way too much money on because I was like, oh, this pertains to my life. Like, I need this potato ration card because it's, like, specific to who I am. Like, (laughs) you know, there's just dumb things that you're going to spend money on and you're going to really enjoy and when you have that in hand and show it to people at events. And a specialist roles are a way to amp that from 20 to 100. (laughs) So. So let's just kind of think if somebody is listening to this and they think you know I've been portraying a rifleman all this time and I really want to follow my passion and be uh, a weatherman or a geologist or whatever it is um, you know what kind of resources do you think people might want to draw on to put something like that together oh my god I can't believe I'm using this phrase um because this is a you thing ask your unit first um but no seriously ask your unit what is most beneficial um to what you guys do because there are ways to work with infantry units when I snickered at that geologist comment is how often were geologists utilized with a regular infantry role like how many times were they, you know, um, stationed with them? And the answer is probably not very many times. Um, granted, I don't know, and I'm just assuming at this point. So I think when you look at a specialist role, think in your own life, what am I interested in? You know, am I interested in more of the engineering aspects? Am I interested in more of the firearm aspects? If you're somebody that's a big gun nut, um, you know, maybe a machine gunner role is something that, you really want to kind of dig into. Granted, once again, money is a big thing when it comes to that, um, that you got to look into. Um, In my case, when I was looking at my own role, it goes back to what is there lacking and what would make me valuable to most events that my unit does 
as a specialist. And what came into mind was communications. So I think that's kind of a big thing. And then from there, read, 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 read. Um, I always tell people when they ask me, hey, I want to get involved in reenacting or my girlfriend wants to get involved in reenacting. Where can she buy stuff? I just tell them first, look, before you start buying kit, please do your research. Um, There's a couple of really good memoirs in regards to communications for Soviet um, with German as far as rear line um, positions. I bet there's tons of books, but I'm thinking on a female experience. Last Ride of the Valkyries by Jimmy Poole is a great resource that kind of goes over everything. Um, I, I just really think if you find the time that you want to do a specialist role. Also, there's tons of manuals out there. A lot of original manuals, too. So read those um, to see if this is something that you want to invest a lot of time and money into. I agree that original manuals and, and sources like that are so important for specialized stuff. A real challenge is, is that... Um, you know, translations of these manuals may not be available. Mm. Or the translations are terrible. Like I tried using like, um, it's not necessarily like Google translate. It starts with a V. I can't remember it, but it's a Russian translation site on one of the radio manuals. Oh my God. It was the worst thing that I've ever tried to attempt in my life. I got five pages in, couldn't make sense of anything because I don't have an electrical background um, and I don't have a Russian background. Um, so that's that's another very good point that you have to look at. So, I, you know, the good thing about this community is there are definitely forms um, that you can go to where you're like, hey, look, I'm interested and this one page of something, does anyone know, tra- can anybody translate this? And sometimes they're not going to be able to, or if they do, they're like, this is incredibly technical. I can't help you. <laughs> um, but what you can do is learn about the radio itself and then see what's out there that is in your language. And then maybe pull from some kind of common variants, at least with Soviet, there's a lot of Lend-Lee stuff um, that you can pull from and there's manuals online about that. And and that's just talking from a comms perspective. I think that applies to almost any of these specialist impressions, you know, Mm -hmm. try to talk to your unit, which is your real life friend group. See if there's somebody there who has information about it, who knows, you know, where to point you to. And then you can reach out to the broader sphere of hobbyists out there on forums or whatever, and look for manuals and original sources. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that those are, those are the main ways to do it. Let me ask you this, since you've done waves before, as well as doing German mm. and Soviet, do you think that it's easier to do an allied, like a, or specifically like an American uh, specialty impression as an American than it is to do a German or Soviet one? Ooh, good question. Yes and no. Yes, as far as it's easier to find information and it's easier to have pocket trash. No, in regards to some of the sources that you're drawing from, especially from like kind of a post-war aspect. Um, I really feel like as Americans, we have a rose-tinted view of the war. It's often seen as the last good war. And so a lot of the experiences and stories, and when, I mean, a big example of this is like whenever I do waves, there's usually some older gentleman that's like, oh, you know, my girlfriend was a wave if it's a World War II vet or it's like 
oh, my mother was a wave or something like this. And then they would say a story that's a great personal antidote, but there's a bias in it because someone's not going to talk about the horrors of war (laughs) to their kids, especially a war that was highly, you know, propagandized as getting us out of, you know, the depression and um, kind of the boom to the baby boomer era. So... In regards to finding the manuals and the pocket trash and all of that stuff, yes, it is easier. Um, the Waves manual, I have an original one, and it's 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 a hoot um, as far as, you know, some of the things that they focus on. I mean, one being is if you get married and you have a higher rank than your husband, how are you supposed to address yourself in your invitation letters? Um, which is very different than, you know, what I've read as far as, you know, the technical stuff in the Soviet, because there wasn't like a gendered, um, manual for women, you know, and then with the German stuff there, there was, and, you know, anyways, that's, that's a rant, but, um, I think when it comes to when you're doing other countries, you have to look into it with the lens of you are viewing this as an American what are your initial biases? And then what are the biases of the sources that are being written? Um, so many times we believe that personal antidotes are the end-all and be-all as far as resources, and there's only a few lens. Um, memory is not infallible, um, and it's really affected by our surroundings and our environment. And then when it comes to, you know, even some primary documents or photos, you know, when or where was this photo taken? Why was this photo taken? Is this a propaganda photo? Is this trying to show a certain story to the masses instead of what was really going on? And I think those are all things that you have to take in consideration. We'd take out some of our pictures from our events and we'd be sharing them with the veterans and you know, they would say, uh, oh, I, I don't remember who this was. Or I, and then we would say, oh, no, no, like, th- that's us. A public show battle is a scripted battle where the um, Americans always win. It is the worst thing imaginable when you're in it. So I, I always bring spare kit along, and if, if somebody wanted to try, you know, joining the unit for the weekend and, and, and see what it's like, I, I, they would be more than welcome. We, we've always got the kit for that. The Reenactors Corner. Bringing history to life. Um, Brittany, we have blown past our time for this episode. Do you have a little bit of more time? Because I would love to talk to you some more about just your experiences in uh, reenacting and uh, some some like general hobby stuff. Could you? Yeah, could we? most most definitely. I'll tell you what. Let's uh, let's wrap up this episode and then. We can record an episode for Patreon for this month. Wow! Um, for, yeah, the, du- for the, the people. double one. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know if you do this to everyone. I feel special. <laughs> no, we don't. Ah. Okay, so for those of you who are listening, if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, um, you can head over to Patreon, and for a small amount of money, you can get access to the bonus episode. To everybody else. Thanks very much for listening. Brittany, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. I hope you guys go listen to the Patreon, spend that little extra money to listen to Chris and I ramble on a little more. And I just want to say thank you for this experience. It's been great chatting with you guys. Oh, cool. All right. uh, So to Brittany and everybody out there, I will see you in the field.